listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. So today I also want to, um, as we're getting started, I, I think it's, uh, you know, maybe it's one of those things where I always think that it's a great day to, to talk about uh, history a little bit, but, um, you know, I don't know. But, uh, but I think it's a, a great day just to acknowledge as well our newest federal holiday, which is Juneteenth, which is today, actually being celebrated tomorrow. Really excited to, to talk about that just a, for a second today because I think it fits really well. Uh, with this passage that we're talking about today. So for those of you who are not familiar with this latest federal holiday, Juneteenth, um, in June 19th, 1865, in Galveston, Texas, federal troops finally reached Galveston and brought news of the emancipation of the slaves to those uh, African Americans in Galveston, Texas. And from that day forward, people there in Galveston began to celebrate that. And then a few years later, through the Great Migration, um, you know, all throughout the world, people began celebrating uh, on June 19th, the emancipation uh, of, of slaves throughout the country. Um, and they would celebrate that uh, with spending time together, uh, but especially with thanking God for this uh, deliverance and emancipation, singing songs together and celebrating together um, with their families and with their communities around the world, whether they were in uh, around the country, whether they were in uh, cities in the north or whether they were in rural areas in the south. Uh, and so it's a great thing for us to be able to acknowledge and to celebrate today. And one of the things that I really want to draw out from that passage as we are uh, from that story and from that history as we're looking specifically at this passage today, it's that uh, in those celebrations, there was this great understanding uh, as they sing these songs together of something that we have a struggle with at times to really appreciate and understand in the scripture, and that's this sort of apocryphal prophetic language that we see in the Old Testament and we see with Jesus. This, uh, we are praying for God's deliverance now. We need God's deliverance now, but it's also an anticipation for the future. It's a prayer and a hope for deliverance in this life, but also an understanding that we have hope beyond this life as well. So whether it's a, a song like Wade in the Water or Swing Low, Sweet Chariots, there's this, this present hope that I would be delivered from my suffering and captivity here and now, but also this future hope that even it can bring me comfort if it's not going to happen in this physical life now, that I trust my God, that I will be delivered in the future. And, and this is the mindset that we need to have to truly understand a passage like Luke chapter 21. It can be difficult at times for people who've never faced oppression or suffering on this kind of systematic level like the people uh, in Israel at this time, like the Jews at this time. It can be difficult for us to wrap our minds around what that might be like in order to understand the teaching of Jesus in the way that we need to understand it. And so just for a little historical background on what's going on with, with Luke uh, at this time. So Luke is probably writing this 
Um, you know, and again, there's different speculations on when this might be, but I think the best, the best account would say sometime in the early to mid-60s A.D., so about 30 years after Christ. And so as he's writing Jesus' message, uh, we, we know he's not writing down every single thing that Jesus ever said. We know that he's using sources like Mark, uh, testimonies from people who were alive at the time. But he's deciding also, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, which things to include and which things to emphasize. And there's specific reasons why he's telling this Christian audience at the time and putting these things in this context, in this way, in this passage. Uh, because we see some differences between this and a passage like, say, Mark chapter 13, um, which has a lot of parallels. Uh, and it's just him bringing out some different emphasis for the audience that he's speaking to at this time. And the audience that he's speaking to is very close to the realities that are happening in this passage. In fact, they're living under a time of incredible persecution at this very time. Okay, So they're, they're enduring the persecution that he's foretelling. In fact, it's probably already a lot of these wars are happening. And within just a few years, in the year A.D. 70, the temple is going to be destroyed and Jerusalem is going to be destroyed exactly like Jesus is prophesying it about here. So Jesus has been crucified. There's a period that's mentioned in this passage where Jews are actively persecuting Christians because of the name of Jesus. There is then a period where both Christians and Jews are being persecuted by the Romans. The Jews are going to go to war with Rome. This massive rebellion comes about in Judea, and they're going to rise up against Rome. And Nero is going to send this general named Vespasian to go to Judea and try to put down this revolt, which is probably happening about the time that Luke is writing uh, this message. But then Nero is going to either be killed or commit suicide, kind of going insane later on in his life. And we know Nero was the perpetrator of horrific persecution against Christians. And Nero is going to either be killed or kill himself, one or the other, in about the year 68 AD. And that's going to bring Rome into this horrible time of civil war where there's four emperors within one year and they're constantly all at the head of different armies. And eventually that man that was sent to put down the problems in Judea, Vespasian, is going to go back to Rome and become the emperor. He's going to leave his son Titus uh, to oversee that conflict in Judea. And ultimately in the year AD 70, Titus is going to lead a siege on Jerusalem. And in that five-month siege, Josephus is going to tell us that over a million people in Jerusalem are killed. Um, we do have exactly what Jesus is foretelling uh, of people fleeing the city, leaving as fast as they possibly can, getting out any way that they possibly can. It's a terrible time if you are pregnant or nursing during this time to have uh, to, to endure this horrible siege where there's this shortage of food and there's this conflict and death all around you, okay? And when finally Titus is going to destroy Jerusalem and he's going to dismantle the temple completely, exactly as Jesus foretells in this passage, and so much so to the point where they make Jerusalem uninhabitable to where nobody can even live there and no one does live there for 60 years. It's a pile of rubble. 
for 60 years. And it's not until the year 130 AD when Rome is going to establish a military colony on the ruins of Jerusalem that people begin to come back to that city and re-inhabit that city again. And so this, this is a very present reality for the people who were hearing this message. But just like some of the spirituals that we were talking about, it's a very present reality, but there's also tied in, always within Jewish literature, going back to the Old Testament, going back to, to Daniel, there's this, there's this present prophecy that's speaking of real life, real world events, but there's also this kind of coded metaphorical language that speaks to a future deliverance as well. And a lot of the times the reason a passage like this can be confusing to us is because they're just going to, Luke's just going to put those things side by side. And so we didn't even really read, and I'm going to leave most of that for Michael next week to talk about in <laughs> verses 25 through 28. But that's where he gets into really more of that kind of metaphorical, apocalyptic type language. But just mention it in this place because that's why chapter 21 can be confusing to people at times is because he's kind of bringing both of these things together. And so it's like, what are you talking about? Is this happening right now? Is this happening way in the future? And the thing that would encourage you to think about is, is this more like a both and kind of a thing. Okay, so, so let me back up for just a, a second. And we're going to say this is what Jesus' main idea from, from this passage, main ideas is going to be. Okay, so uh, Jesus' main ideas here is that the world is coming to an end. Okay, in the meantime, we're going to have all kinds of trouble. And so we should be ready to endure those troubles, okay? So the world as you know it, the world itself, your world is coming to an end. In the meantime, you have all kinds of troubles that we have to endure. And so we need to be ready to endure those things. So first of all, the world is going to come to an end. The world is going to come to an end. So there's, there's some direct prophecy and apocalyptic type language in here. Um, which people are going to point to, again, like I was saying, even going as far as verse 28, 29, um, they're going to point to a future cosmic sort of reality that still has real-world implications. We're looking at uh, those last few verses that we didn't read, verse 25 through 28. Bertrand Russell, a famous uh, philosopher and atheist, points those out as a, as a failed prophecy that Jesus made that helps prove why he would be an atheist. He says, look at this passage. Jesus said he's going to come in a cloud. He didn't come in a cloud when the temple was destroyed. And so we know he was a liar. We don't have to worry about what he said and believe him. The problem with that is that it's, again, it's a misunderstanding of this apocalyptic language, this metaphorical language, whatever you want to call it. And so we want to make sure we don't, do, we don't make the same mistake. And we've, we see people making a couple different mistakes with this whole chapter. Either they're doing what Russell did and saying, well, we see this. It was supposed to happen in AD 70. It didn't happen, so Jesus is a liar. Or we see sometimes people set, taking all of this and saying every bit of this is supposed to be in some kind of future date and trying to figure out, you know, who those people might be and you know, when is the temple going to be rebuilt so that it can then be destroyed in this way. And, like, you know, it's definitely not talking about events that happened way back in AD 70 and trying to put everything far off into the future. And, again, I, I hope that we can start to grasp this as kind of a both-and type of a way. And let me just go ahead and make this qualifier because... Even just talking about this passage with Monty and Ryan, like out in front of the church before this, it's like already 15 different ways to interpret this passage. So let me just go ahead and say, one of the things I said to them is like, you know, every single 
theologian in the world has a different take on eschatology. And so um, there's probably going to be stuff that I say during all this that you're like, that doesn't make sense, or I don't agree with that. That's cool. I'm not going to fight with, uh, we don't have to fight about it, okay? Hopefully some of the, what I'm trying to bring out here is, you know, I'm not going to get out the flannel board and show you step-by-step everything that happens in the eschatology. I'm not going to bring out flow charts and all that kind of stuff. I wanna, I'm hoping to fit on, hit on a few key points that we can all take and make applications from this passage, okay? And so it's not that some of that stuff is not important or interesting, um, but I want this to be something that we can all uh, benefit from, okay? Which I think is more of what Jesus is trying to accomplish here. So, um, so yes, the world is going to come to an end. Yes, we have those several different ways of trying to, to, to understand this passage, but I think that we can really... Uh, understand it in that both and kind of a way. There's present, there's for us today, looking back, there's past applications of this, things that have happened in the past to the people of God. There are present applications and there's future hope and application that we can make to this as well. Um, So I think it's a little bit more like this reasoning. So, so Jesus is talking to people as if he's saying the end of the world is at hand. And they're like, you know, the whole world? Yeah. Like our world, like my life here in Jerusalem? Yeah, that life. Like uh, the, the, the whole world, the, the world's coming to an end? Yeah, all those things. Your life is coming to an end. Jerusalem's coming to an end. The whole world eventually is coming to an end. These things are going to happen. For us today, the end is coming. The end of the entire world? Yes, the end of the entire world is coming. Jesus is going to return. We see at the end of Revelation, it's going to be different. He's going to bring these, these changes about. But the end of comfortable religion? Sure. The end of America? The end of American religion? Yes. All of these things we can make applications to. Um, so there's, there's one teaching, one illustration, but there's also several applications to that. The real surprising thing about this passage is that there's some stuff that Jesus is going to lay out there that's not hidden in kind of metaphorical apocalyptic language at all. Okay, that's most of the time when he's talking about these things, he does kind of couch it in that type of language. But what I would say to someone like Bertrand Russell is look at the direct prophecy he makes and exactly how it comes true just a few years later, exactly the way that he says it does. So much so that some people are like, there's no way that he wrote this, you know, before the destruction of the temple. He had to have been looking back at that event. But the best sources say, no, yes, he wrote this before the destruction of the temple, quoting Jesus' terms, even before that had happened. And so the surprising thing is not that there's some of this apocalyptic language in here, which Jesus uses all the time. The surprising thing is that we see direct prophecy, which was fulfilled within just a few years of this happening. Uh, it's a pretty, pretty clear testament to the truth of Jesus' message and the truth of what he was talking about. And so we see a, we see a couple of things here. Verse 8, we see that the end, the end is a hand. The end, what, what, and the disciples even struggle with this. What is the end? What do you mean, the end? What do you mean by this? He means a couple of different things. He means the end of the temple. He means the end of the, the Jewish temple sacrificial system. He means the end, really, in a lot of ways, of the entire Jewish way of worshiping and relating to God. They don't need that anymore because we now have Jesus to relate to God. We don't need to relate to God through sacrifice anymore. We relate to him. Through Jesus. So this, this temple is destroyed. This sacrificial system is destroyed. We see in verse 6, the, the stone, no stone is left unturned or on top of each other. All this points to distress and difficulty for the people of God. 
is a present reality of persecution that they're going to have to face, that they're going to have to endure. And again, this is speaking to direct persecution that the, the followers of Christ that Luke is talking to had to endure, but it also speaks to reality that the church is going to face throughout the history of the church. And the fact that we can't relate to it as much is more a result of like a historical anomaly that for whatever reason our church hasn't really had to endure that that much over the past several years, but that's not the way it's been most of the time throughout history. Most of the time throughout history, those who wear the name of Jesus have endured persecution, have endured suffering, have endured struggle. But even people who live as comfortable Christians in America, we know we face trials, we face difficulties that we can't understand. And we know we look to a future and we see in a lot of ways the way that, that our culture is going and we know there's going to be a time probably in our lifetimes when that's more our reality than not. Already we're in a phase where wearing the name of Christ is not exactly a cool thing anymore. It's not exactly going to win you a lot of brownie points or get you in with the right kinds of people anymore. And we're quickly moving to a time where there might be outright, out, outright persecution for Christians, um, people who wear the name of Christ. But I love this passage also because Verse seven and nine, seven to nine, really anticipates like a lot of uh, our own struggles with a passage like this. So he says, "They asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place?" And he said, "See that you're not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am He. The time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified about these things." These things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Okay. So it's like, why are you saying all this stuff then, Jesus? Why are you terrifying us with all this stuff and then saying, but don't worry about it? He's like, there's going to be wars, there's going to be persecution, but don't stress about it too much. Okay? Like, these things are going to happen, but it's going to be okay. But I think, again, he's speaking not just to those disciples. He's speaking through the ages to the church. He's speaking... To us, he's saying, you will endure persecution. You will endure suffering. You will go through these things. But you don't become so obsessed with trying to figure out when, what's the sign of the end times? Who's the Antichrist going to be? Like, you know, when, when is this going to happen that you miss the point of the gospel, that you miss the point of being a part of God's kingdom, that you miss the point of what Jesus has and is accomplishing in the world. It's so easy to get caught up into that. And I remember one of the very first, I try to be sympathetic to it because I think one of the very first things that got me interested in, in theology was, you know, reading like Left Behind or something like that, you know, uh, back in middle school and in, in high school, reading all those books and being like, oh man, is this how it's really going to be? And trying to dig into that and then becoming, you know, stupidly obsessed with a lot of weird things like, oh man, is Al Gore the Antichrist? You know, uh, that's going to situate me in a very specific time frame there for you. Because uh, there's only like a year where he might have been the Antichrist. But, um, but yeah, so, so you have those kind of the, the obsessions that, that really is kind of silliness. And that's what Jesus is, is pointing out here. Like, don't, don't get, like, this is, important to, this is important to remember. It's important to acknowledge. 
like the end of the world is coming, like Jesus is going to return, you will endure persecution. But don't become so obsessed with this that you miss the point of God establishing his kingdom in your heart and life and in the world. Don't become so obsessed with this that you don't make disciples. There are some churches, there are some communities of Christianity that are so obsessed with end times that, and, and the way all these things are going to happen and that they're not making disciples in the here and now. So they're not preparing people's hearts. And they're not living on mission for him and his kingdom in the here and now. But you can definitely have the opposite problem of saying all that stuff is silliness and all that stuff is stupid. And we don't even want to think about that stuff because it's, 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 silly people get into all of that. So it must just be silly. But we don't have the luxury of doing that as people who believe the scriptures, as people who believe the word of God. So our task is then to say, well, what, are, what is our response supposed to be to that? To, to, to definitely understand that this is going to happen, that Christ is going to return, that there will be an end of the world, and that we're called to, in the meantime, endure the persecution that we're called to endure. Whether that's a, a time of real intense persecution like under Nero, whether that's a, a time of you know, cultural uh, you know, differences, or whether that's trying to, to, to maintain our focus on Christ in a time when the church is, you know, on top like it was 50 years ago. Any of those has a struggle in its own type of way. But in the meantime, we're called to endure those, those troubles. From Luke's perspective, he's definitely writing this during a time of intense persecution and highlighting what Jesus said for those people. The most used phrase in the, in the Greek in this passage is what we translate as, as will, the word will. Um, you will have all kinds of trouble. You will face persecution, used over 30 times in chapter 21. And it's emphasizing the imminent certainty of what he's talking about. He's wanting them to be aware of the reality of this, while at the same time we see him saying, some other stuff has to take place first. This is not happening at once, but definitely live in the awareness that this is a reality. Okay? Definitely live in the awareness that there will be persecution, that that's going to be a real thing in your life. So, so don't go, like, man, why me, God? Why are we facing this? No, he's calling us from the very beginning saying, you will face these trials. You will face these persecutions. So there's, again, this kind of immediate and long-term application for the church. For us, we're living in a time of, of real transition, a time where the church probably enjoyed more uh, benefits and um, you know, acceptance than it ever had in the history of the world in a lot of ways. Uh, and yet we're leaving that time very quickly. It's been traced, whether it's uh, from academia, from schools, from in education, whether it's in politics. You know, we were, I was talking, you know, just a couple, uh, couple days ago with my, my mother-in-law about you know, how John F. Kennedy was the first Catholic who was elected and how he had to literally go to a meeting of Baptists in Texas and, like, answer to them about how his Catholic faith was going to influence him as a president. This is in the 60s. That's a, you know, you can't imagine a, you know, a president feeling the need to go and speak to a, Congress, a, you know, a conference of Baptist pastors anymore. Our, we don't hold that kind of influence anymore over whether or not a president's going to be elected. Um, that it's not the kind of influence that, our, that the church has in our culture. And for, for some reason, it's our own fault. I think that our church, the church in America became too obsessed with political power in a lot of ways, got off on what the message was supposed to be. 
Um, but in other ways, it, it shows, I think, a lack of discipleship in a church itself because we're, we're not to the level of influence that we've been anymore. We've kind of let down on our job. So, so people are always becoming disciples, but instead of becoming Christian disciples today, they're becoming disciples of the culture of our world, the culture that is predominant in our day and age. And so we're living in a time of very real transition where we're going to see much more radical opposition to the church in a Christian worldview. And I'm not trying to, to prophesy what that's going to mean or what that's going to look like, but we can see, especially in some specific areas and specific ways of believing the scripture and interpreting the scripture as it's been in an orthodox way throughout the past several thousand years, that some of those things are not going to line up well with the values of this age. And so it's one of those things where we haven't experienced this as much in the past, but it's time for us to begin preparing. And as we think about bringing our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, how can we intentionally prepare them for a world that we haven't experienced before? And that's a challenge for us. Again, it's looking at a parent dedication and, and, and committing as a church to raise up our children in this kind of a way. We're not preparing them for the world that we live in now. We're preparing our children in the next generation for a world that we can't necessarily conceive of. Think of the culture of the world 20 years ago versus what it is today. And then imagine what it's going to be in 20 years when, when your kids are entering young adulthood. Those kids that we were dedicating today are entering that young adulthood. It's, it could be a very radically different place. As a, as a father, that's a, a scary thing for me, but it's also, it also puts an urgency inside me for how to, to, to build them up in the way of the Lord and in the teaching of the Lord so they're prepared for things that I can't even necessarily understand and comprehend. The other thing I think that this really emphasizes for us is the desperate need that we have for a true Christian community as a church. We need each other desperately, okay? Because each and every one of us are shaped and molded by the environment that we're in, by the world that we're in. Not passively, though, but actively. And part of that means we get to choose the environment that we're in. We get to choose the environment that we're exposed to and that our families are exposed to. So we want to put ourselves in an environment as much as possible with people who love Jesus, who want to pursue Jesus. That's not possible 100% of the day. We're not living in a Christian culture anymore. So there's going to be parts of our day where, whether it's at school or whether it's at, at church, I mean, or whether it's not, hopefully not church, whether it's at, at school, or whether or not it's, it's at work, or whether it's with our neighborhoods where where we're, we're around people who are not believers, who don't have the same values as us. But when it comes to choosing what we listen to, what we watch, what we hear, the people that we spend our time with, the people that, we exp that, we spend, that our children spend their time with, more than ever, it's important for us to build real Christian community and Christian family. I think this is one of the things that I think about a lot when I hear Jesus say that it you know, his kingdom is going to be setting father against brother, you know, mother against father against son, mother against daughter, um, where we hear someone say that you're, we're called to, to find that friend that's closer than a brother. I think if, if any of you are like me, there may, there may be people in your, your family um, who, you know, they're, they're blood, but if they don't believe 
in Jesus and they're not pursuing him in that same kind of way. Some people that I am, know here at church who I may not have the same background as me, may not have the same interests as me, I'm closer with those people on a deeper level because Jesus is most important to me and Jesus is most important to them. And that's somebody that on a deeper level than even a blood brother is a brother or a sister to me in Christ. And especially in a world where it's harder and harder to have real community, we as the church have to be to desperately put ourselves in each other's lives, to, to strive to, to build those friendships and those relationships. Because as the world goes, if you know, sparing God, hopefully bringing some great revival to our country, sparing that, if the world continues to go as it is, that's going to become ever more important. And we don't want to wake up and find ourselves in a world where we desperately need our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we don't have those relationships with them that we need to have. Again, even our relationships should be shaped by the Bible and by the, the community that we see there more than the values of our world today. Our world today are kind of driving people into isolation more and more. Consumed with an online personality, online profile, my, uh, my cell phone, my followers, my online friends, and, and, and less and less to real community where we're open and honest and exposed to one another. And so we have to, to make sure that we're, we're intentionally putting ourselves in those positions to grow as a Christian community and to grow close to one another. He says in verse 12 that it's for his name's sake, and, and again, we can't emphasize enough that that's becoming a, a reality today. It, it, to be a Christian is a very different thing in his, his life, and it, is, than it is today, and it is today as well, than, than what the rest of the world is going to value and appreciate and love. We see promises to the early church um, are still precious promises for us today in this passage as well. We learn, um, and, and there are things that we need to learn in our hearts beforehand, before we face persecution, before we endure suffering. And some of those that we see in this passage are, do not be deceived. There are going to be people who want to deceive us, who want to lead us down different paths in different ways. Some of them will be standing up in pulpits and, and saying that they're pastors. I'm challenging you, anything that I say, anything that your pastors here at South Point say, check that to the word of God. We're, we're people, you know. The, no pastor is inerrant. You know, no pastor is perfect. We don't set our hope in people. We set our hope in the word of God, the word of God. And we, we see that again as well. We're going to gain our wisdom from his words. He says, uh, he, says he will give us the wisdom that we cannot even meditate on beforehand to gain. That comes through his spirit. We also are going to have, though, a chance to bear witness. We're going to have a chance to bear witness as we endure this, prepare ourselves for that in advance. We're going to have a, a chance to, to gain our lives by endurance. And we're going to be able to gain wisdom through his Holy Spirit. And so the last thing I would encourage us to, the third thing is get ready and endure. So get ready to endure, get ready and endure. So again, we see destruction all throughout this passage. We see persecution all throughout this passage. It can be a very much of a, a doom and gloom type of a passage. And I'm sure that for the disciples that Jesus was speaking to, it very much felt that way. And yet, in the midst of this, there is great hope in the person and work of Jesus. 
So yes, there is suffering. Yes, people will hate you. But you have hope and you have the truth that even those people do not have. And so we're called. He says in verse, uh, and this is a passage that we didn't read today again as well, but looking back at that direct context, this is coming right after we see this verses 1 through 4, this widow's offering that we heard about last week. Give everything that you have. Why? Because the time is at hand. Because we have different kingdom values. Because we're not depending on money for our salvation or to, to get us through persecution. We're depending on him. Our hope is in him and him alone. So give everything that you have. Don't be fooled and don't be afraid. That's another one I think that, that's important for us to hear. Is that we don't have to fear in the midst of this. It's one of the, the like, almost seems like contradictory things that he says. It's like, lots of people are going to die, but not a hair on their head is going to be harmed. You know, it's like, that doesn't, even, that doesn't even make sense. But it does make sense when we understand, again, we will face real not just spiritual, not just metaphorical persecution and suffering, but real persecution and suffering. And yet, again, we know that this world is not all there is. That, that we pray for that deliverance now. We pray for his kingdom to be established here and now, but we also look with anticipation for the time when it will be, even if we don't see it. Even if we don't see it. We pray for, for that joy-filled, peaceful life now. None of us want persecution and suffering and oppression. We don't want those things. We pray for that peace now, but we also anticipate the reality that this world is going to offer suffering, and we also look with anticipation to the future when no hair on our heads will be harmed, even if they were in this life. Because we see in God, in Jesus, the first fruits of the resurrection, a new life that he's going to bring. And so we can, we can hold those contradictions together, that we can face real actual persecution and suffering while still knowing that not a hair on our head is going to be harmed if we are in Christ. And so we can trust him and trust his word. We can look for Jesus coming. And the gospel of Jesus, the kingdom of God, calls us to give up everything and follow him. See, in verse 22, also this mention, I'm trying to run through a couple of little ideas um, before I'm out of time, we see I mentioned this day of venge this day of vengeance is mentioned, and it's uh, it brings to mind the idea of some kind of vengeful deity. But what really is meant is a time when sin, which has been unchecked for so long, unpunished for so long, is at last confronted with God's justice. One of the things I want us to see from this is the character of God in this passage: the fact that God is a just God, the fact that God punishes sin, the fact that God still shows mercy to his children. So we can see beautifully displayed in this passage the character of the God that we trust, the character of the God that we hope in and believe in. And so, the, so there's a joyful source of security in Jesus and in understanding who God is. And so the questions we ask then is, what are the practical ways that we can begin to get ready and to endure? How can we be Spiritual preppers. Not, uh, not necessarily saying you need to dig a bunker, you know, beneath your house, which is cool. I know some of you have those. I'm not saying any names. I'll be at your house if everything goes south, but I don't want everybody to make it. No, I'm just joking. Um, but, but how can we spiritually be prepared? Take, keep in mind, like, we're not living in, like, fear 
We're not crippled by fear of the world, crippled by fear, but, but we're prepared in Christ. And the things that I would really challenge you on is honestly to be prepared. It means not to necessarily obsess and focus over the end, but to, to focus on what it means to be a disciple here and now, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And if I am doing that, then my heart is being prepared for his kingdom. My heart is being prepared to endure those sufferings and those tribulations. And so a couple of practical things just to bring out specifically from this passage. First of all, now is the time to commit yourselves to the family of God more than any other. We need each other in the best of times, but we really need each other when times are not great. And, and we need to be a, a, a place where people know who you are and know what your struggles are and know what your needs are and can speak truth into your life from the word of God more than just a, hey, how you doing? Nice to see you. See you next Sunday. Okay? That's the kind of community we're trying to build in this church. There are some people who come here, and that's not what they want, and that's okay. But we want to be the kind of people who are honest with each other, who are truly overcoming sin, who are truly helping each other in life and living life together. That's what we desire to be because we're going to need that, again, in the very best of times we need it, but we're really going to need it uh, when times are not great. And we want that for our families as well. The next thing, we, we want to make sure that we turn to the Word, turn to the Word of God. We're not wanting to be deceived. We're not wanting to be people who are deceived by others. We have to turn to the Word of God to understand what the truth is. And turn to Jesus. Reject the comfort and security that the world offers. The world is always going to have uh, uh, appealing offerings to throw out our way, but they're going to be things that, Maybe bring us momentary happiness, but don't bring us comfort and security and peace. And finally, tell other people the good news. One of the things that he brings out in this passage, and one of the reasons why we endure persecution is because it's in that persecution that the kingdom of God expands. When you have genuine believers who are enduring that suffering together as the family of God. One of the reasons why the church went from just a few little pockets of people is because this horrible persecution came on them and people were being killed for their faith and yet they did not deny Jesus. And people were laying their lives down for one another. And people were sacrificing for each other in ways that Roman soldiers would see this and say, man, my brother soldier would not do this for me. There's something that these people have that I want, even if it means death. And that's the kind of family and community that we want to build. That's the kind of faith that we want to have. It's not going to happen if we wait until the persecution comes. It has to be real and present in our hearts in the here and now. And all of us have struggles and suffering and pain to endure. And the challenge for us is to prepare beforehand so when we go through those things, we can endure with faith and confidence and the hope that we have in Christ. And we can depend on each other when we need each other the most. Each and every week here at South Point, we participate in a family meal. And this family meal recognizes the unity that we have in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross and the kingdom that he is building. We take this bread as a symbol of the body of Christ that was broken for us. And we drink some of this 
juice is a symbol of the blood of Jesus poured out for us. And that is the hope we have. We're not building a community because we have mutual interest. We're building a community, uh, or rather Christ is building a community because we were dead and now we're alive. We're, we're being built into this community of God because we were sinful enemies of God who have now been made alive together with Christ, friends of God, and a family together. And so as we remember uh, this sacrifice that he made um, through this participation in communion, let that be heavy on your mind that that's what drives us as individuals, as believers, as a family, is the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. It's a time for us to reflect, to pray with one another, to confess our sins. If we have problems with one another, to go and confess those things to each other, to be reconciled and made right, again, because of the sacrifice and the blood of Jesus. And so in just a minute, I'm going to pray, uh, and then uh, we'll have a time where you as a family or you as an individual can come to these stations around the room and participate in this time of communion. We would ask that if you, this is for open for anybody who's a believer. If you're not a believer, I would encourage you, come, come talk to me. Um, come talk to somebody else, one of our other pastors, and, uh, and learn about what that means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. But this is a, a family meal, so it's not restricted just to partners with South Point, but anybody who's a believer in Christ is part of our family. Uh, and so we would ask that. Um, so let's pray together, and then after this prayer, we'll uh, go to, to participate in this communion.